right? How many uh, muscle cars, uh, you know, lovers we have here? Dragsters, guys who like to look under the hood, yes, no? You're not going to admit it in public? All right, don't all jump in at once. That's, that's right. Who knows the origin of what we know today as horsepower? Father-in-law is um, he's, uh, not allowed to participate because uh, we've been talking about it over Thanksgiving you know, dinner a little bit about this. Uh, so he knows, he knows uh, more than many of us here this, this morning already. But horsepower. James Watt, turn of the century, 18th century, he wanted to measure power of steam engines, right? And he wanted some kind of equation by which he could like finitely uh, define, you know, and measure uh, this, this force, right? And so, uh, this impetus, if you will, and and, and channel it um, and, uh, uh, to a technological advancement and whatnot. And so he thought he would compare it exactly to what you would probably suspect. He compared it to the force by which a draft horse would lift about 330 pounds over a 100-foot chasm, if you will, and he would measure the amount of turns of this pulley. Technically speaking, here is how it, it's, descri- it's, it's been described. Watt determined that a horse could turn a, mi- a mill wheel 144 times in an hour. That's about 2.4 times per minute. The wheel uh, being 12 feet in diameter, therefore the horse traveled um, about 2.4 times 2 pi times 12 feet in one minute. Are you bored yet? Watt judged <laughs> that the horse could pull with the force of 140 pounds force, which is about 800 newtons, and so he defined and calculated the horsepower to be roughly about 33,000. You know, he rounded to about 33,000 feet per pounds force per minute. That's how we get that term for horsepower. And then I was like, okay, but what kind of, you know, how did you measure that with? What kind of horse do you measure with? What's, what's, what's unique about these draft horses? As I've been thinking about this, like a couple of uh, actually weeks ago, because I know we were going to get in this, in this passage, just the other week we had the air show at Homestead Air Force Base, and because Budweiser um, sponsored, you know, the event, they brought in these Clydesdale, and that's exactly what these guys look like. They're, I mean, these are mammoth creatures, you know, animals. Some of them weigh upwards of 2,500 pounds, right? Size of a a 18, 19 foot boat, if you will. I mean, these, these are like, you know, mammoth creatures. I mean, they, they really instill a fear of God in you as they pass by. They're beautiful too. But I was, you know, as I dug in, you know, to it, and some of you probably already know this, this, uh, this nugget, this trivia, or this piece of data, which I found really astonishing about these animals. And that is that one Clydesdale horse or one draft horse has the capacity to haul about 8,000 pounds on a day. Did you know that? No? <laughs> no, I knew that. All right. Well, you know it now. By simple math, though, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to participate with me over here, but by simple math, if you tether two of them, so if one Clydesdale draft horse is able to haul about 8,000 pounds on a day, if you tether them together, if you yoke two of them together, they're able to haul how many pounds a day? Right, you would think so, right? You would think that the math, the exact math would, would be they just double their efforts. But it's not true. Look how God works inevitably, right? 
in nature and creation is that when you tether them untrained, just put them together, they're able to haul 24,000 pounds untrained. And if you train them, actually, they're able, able to haul upwards of 30,000 pounds. Is that phenomenal or what? Is that mind-boggling? I mean, is there a nugget there somewhere for us? It's like the horse are trying to tell us something, right? Well, God is trying to tell us something through creation. Uh, it's just astonishing, um, you know, piece of data and information. And uh, as we consider the text that was read before us, you know, Hebrews, you might be asking, Pastor, what does that have to do with the text? I have no idea at all. I just like, I just like that analogy. I thought you would, you know, stuck on it, be thinking about it the rest of the day. And now we can get to the sermon. So, no. I'm kidding. I think somewhere in there, there's, a, there's something for us. You know, we've been talking, we've purposed, we've postured ourselves at this time of the year to, to, to really knock on the door of heaven, ask God to work in and through this church that we would make our house a home in 2019. And we sent you out with the pledge cards, we're praying, we cast out somewhat of a vision for it. But the question here lies is, what would it look like if we would all rally with, with, with reckless abandon, if we would throw our entire selves, everything of who we are, into what we believe God could do, and the multiplication and the, and the exponential impact of giving ourselves to, one another, to God and to one another to see what he could do in 2019 to make our house a home. And so I feel there's at least three. I know those of you who've been uh, Presbyterians for a while, you find it somewhat amusing that we would select a passage of text, but in the three points, we just seem to like conveniently jump out of it. Um, but here it is again. I mean, there's three verses, and I feel like there's at least three undeniable pastoral charges, three pastoral charges. Very briefly, you've probably heard all of them. In fact, they're somewhat reiterating in nature. Because what I believe is the Apostle Paul, many scholars would say um, Paul is the author of this letter to the Hebrews or to the early church, first century Christians, Jew converts that are living in Jerusalem, that he's simply finishing up this letter, this last chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, and he's like reiterating them, like, let me remind you of these pastoral charges. I've already charged you with once. I'm going to end this letter, so, so like bookends, if you will, with these pastoral charges. They're right here. It's emphatic. It's, it's undeniable. It's in the text in front of us, and here they are. Love one another. Be hospitable. And be known by the way in which you empathize with others. Love one another, be hospitable, be known by the radical way by which you empathize with others. Far too often as Christians, I think you would agree with me that we're not defined in the workspace, in, the, in our neighborhoods, in secular culture where we, do our, where we live our lives. We're not often defined by that which unites us. Often they understand and they look at our Christianity by the things that divide us. Would you agree with me? And so more, and sadly enough, far more often than not, we're not known by what brings us together. We're known by what takes us apart, what tears us apart. 
Oh, is this Lutheranism? Is this Presbyterianism? Is this Baptist? Is this? Is that? Is that? Is this a doctrine, a dissenting, you know, uh, doctrine? You know, you belong to this, belong to that. I grew up somewhat Catholic. How is that different? I mean, we're, we're much more defined by, like, our separateness than our togetherness, than our unity. That can't be more antithetical to what our master, our Lord Jesus Christ, explicitly commanded us to live by. It's a mandate. It's not an optional. John 13, 34 through 35, you're very familiar with this text. In fact, I'd ask that you would read it with me. Read it with me. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I has loved you. You see, there's an example. You also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see that? If we're trusting God to bring fruition to this vision, this bold vision we believe God has given us to really make our house a home in 2019, we must understand the indispensable and contagious quality of what it means to be the church on a mission to the degree that we are resolved to love one another as Christ, God the Son, we're about to enter into this Advent season. His name is Emmanuel, meaning the one who came so that you would never be alone. He's God with you, with us. That God the Son has loved us. It's an imperative you see that. There is, Jesus furthermore says, we don't have time to unpack all of the passage in which he's so emphatic. He furthermore says, there is no way to know me and to say you have a relationship with me when you don't have an intentional relationship of caring, loving, and growing together with one another. We've bought into some sort of Western American Christianity that we can come in together for an hour, an hour and a half at most because we tolerate each other. And then we go out with some sense of false hope that we can live a contagious and a bold faith and an irresistible influence in a city. Indicting question, and that's not my intent, but to all of us, would it be revealing if we were to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what relationship have I grown deeper into and with in 2018? Where are the evidences of my life that show my disposition to love, practically to love, to run toward my wife, my husband, my kids, my neighbors, my coworker, my boss, on and on and on. It's not an optional. Matthew Henry, the great biblical scholar and New Testament commenter, he's put it, he puts it this way, the spirit of Christianity is a spirit of love. Faith works by love. Crossbridge Church, Pinecrest, how does faith work? Love. The true religion is the strongest bond of friendship. If it be not so, it has its name for nothing. Now, I understand, and I've seen firsthand, I've been... I've had front row seat to all the many ways and instances by which I've observed you love. There's, there's been utterances of loving one another in this community here. So the command of the Apostle Paul here, and it's very important, is it's, what he says is, you know, love one another. It's something you haven't been doing. No, he says, continue to, 
or remember to. In the NIV, he says, keep on loving one another. Why would he say that? I've seen you do it. It's in you. The expression of this good news you have received has shown, has manifested itself in your actions. I just want you to continue on or continue to remember or let brotherly love continue. So that word is an important word. I would circle, I would underline if you understand the charge, the apostle's heart, and to us here today as well, is that we've seen it. I've seen the countless occasions your exemplary care for one another, how both our women and our men here at Crossbridge and Pinecrest have ran to the aid of a hurting brother or sister in the midst of indescribable pain, the times that you have visited one another in the ER and prayed for each other in the pre-operational room in a post-operation room, the many stories of how so many of you have been extremely generous with your time and given sacrificially, the command remains faithful. Remain faithful. Do not lose heart. Abide in this love that we have received from God in Christ. Keep on loving. Number two, be hospitable. It's right there, verse two. If the first charge speaks to the necessity to behave out of a deep sense of belief... Here's the charge to welcome others so that they too can belong. I'll explain. It used to be that the Big Tent Revival would first speak of a good news of the gospel, of truths, right? Of propositional truths. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And at first you would, you would decide whether you're going to believe. And then you started to become look more like it, you'd cut the, you know, there was an era in which, you know, church wasn't all that friendly toward, you know, different fashion and length of hair and tattoo and that kind of thing. You, should, you would think that, you know, how the Christian life was, was starting to see itself out in your actions in your life, and then, you know, you would uh, be received in, if you will, and welcomed, as they say, like a formal member of this community of grace, the body, right, of Christ. And yet in the new process, what I believe God is saying to us as a church is he's sending us out with a great deal of resolve and impetus and intentionality to cause others from every walk of life, with every baggage, with every experience and their upbringing to belong first, to simply be loved. And then, to, and then maybe to believe and then to become. But to love with no agenda, to love for the sake of love. To welcome for the sake of welcome. To be hospitable for the sake of being hospitable just as God has been with us. And we've seen that here in our midst. So many of you, we had that great opportunity to lead you to Christ, to baptize you, even though you had been coming for months, if not years. That's the story of so many of us here. Hospitality is a significant theme in God's word. When you read Romans 12, I don't have that on the screen. When you read Romans 12, it says, contribute to the needs of the, of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's a command. You know, here we see, you know, the command to not to neglect. Don't, don't forsake the grace that it is to open the door of your living room, to pull an extra chair at the coffee shop, to reach into your pocket and say, I got this. It's okay. Come on in. It's got to hurt. It's got to cost. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The idea there is that, that you don't, this is not a out of duty. This is out of delight. This is not out of religion. 
compliance. This is out of obedience. This is out of joy. You see the difference? Don't do it begrudgingly. Do it because it's been done to you, and the only license you have to love is the way by which you have been loved. There's three characteristics of his hospitality. I'm going to run, run us through real quick here if you're taking notes. Stay with me rather swiftly. Here it is, A, B, and C. Within inside this subpoint of being hospitable, letter A, hospitality is the active response of a life of worship to God because it understands how great a grace we have received. Hospitality is the response of the totality of one's life that understands that first we were stood on the recipient end of it when we did not deserve. When we were wayward, running away from God, rebellious. Romans 5.8 says that Christ gave himself up for us while we were yet sinners. While we did not deserve. When we understand the depth of the love of God and his pursuit toward us. We can't help but turn our, ourselves outward face. In fact, we, you've heard it said here at Crossbridge many times, the gospel only calls us into what? To send us out. It's a one-way love. It permeates the, the heart of stone and makes it a hard flesh and it turns us toward the brokenness of others. The New Testament word for hospitality literally means to love the stranger. Consider that definition, the gospel implications of hospitality. When we do that, it begins to surface immediately into us. God loves us while we were yet enemies. He sought us when we were not seeking him. God drew us to himself when we were alienated from him. He did it all at a tremendous personal cost, namely his life, to restore us into a right standing with the Father. Letter B, hospitality isn't a passive exercise. It's an active pursuit of seeking to identify with the brokenness and the need around us. It sends us forward as agents of healing and renewal in people's lives. Ask yourself that in 2018. I don't mean this as an indictment to us as a community. Yet if God were to use that to propel us toward repentance... And a great deal of boldness as we move into a new year. Ask yourself that retrospectively into 18. Have you pursued with reckless abandon with everything in you, the brokenness and the inadequacy, the unlovedness of others in your life? Look at Jesus' ministry. There was a label that he never refuted. There were many labels that he refuted. Oh, you're doing this on the Sabbath. Well, you don't under he, and Jesus would reply, well, you don't understand the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. I'm your true rest. Oh, you're healing this in, Bezo, in uh, uh, Beelzebub's name. So you don't understand. How could that be possible? He, refused, he says, and so on and on and on. There are times in which he's like correcting and, re, and admonishing and exhorting, you know, the religious leaders of his day. But there was a title that in a label that he never refuted. And that was what? Friends of sinners. When he sat with the tax collector and the prostitute, the wayward, the, the socially outcast, and they said, that's who you identify yourself with? You're friends with them? And Jesus said, thought to himself, mm, yeah, that's about right. That's exactly who I am. And the early 
years of his days of his ministry, what the gospel writers tell us that when he saw the brokenness, the distress, his heart was filled with compassion. Do you see? His motion toward us, the, the posture we ought to have with others is that their need, their brokenness should actually gravitate, should magnet, you know, uh, draw us in, um, into, into meeting those, uh, those needs. Simon Carey Holtz puts it this way. He says, it's a good reminder that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and every day it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor it is terribly glamorous, he says. Yet it is very, it's very ordinariness, ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Most of you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. Most of what you do will go unnoticed and unrecognized. He says this, and at base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes in the, in the, in the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness, it is of real worth. Number three, or letter C, hospitality is not a spiritual gift. I wanted to say that to see if I could catch some of you are starting to daze, and, you know, and uh, just to check to see if you're with me and awake. Indulge me here. Spirit, hospitality is not a spiritual gift. I'm going to list to you uh, here the gifts of the Spirit, which we, look, we see in the New Testament, which are apportioned deliberately to the church. Every one of us built individually. God, according to his sovereign wisdom, has dispensed and given you know, to each of us different gifts so that we would build the body, right, for the glory of his name and his fame here on this earth. And he uh, lists these in the letters to the Romans and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, so Romans 12, Ephesians 4, you can look it up at home. But I'm going to give you that list. I don't have it up on the screen. But as I give you this list, I just want you to pay attention, okay, to what the spiritual gifts are. Some of you have done spiritual gifts assessment. I don't know. You know what your strengths and your, what your gifts are and how you to harness them and the, and the context of the ministry of the local church and the importance of doing that. Some of you don't. But here is a, a short, concise list. Not an exhaustive list, but it covers pretty much all of them. I want you to pay attention to all of them. Then I'm going to ask you a question, a tricky question. I'm already warning you. All right, here it is. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, service. It's a gift of service. Administration, faith, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. Where's the gift of hospitality in there? Did you hear it? No. Why? It's not a choice. Right? I just heard someone say the gift of hospitality, it's, it, it's, it's so, it's amazing. I feel like this is a good nugget if you didn't get anything so far. It's that this is not a crutch by which you say, oh, I wasn't given that. I'm not wired that way. I'm a little more of an introvert. It's okay to be an introvert. God can use you in those regards. But this has nothing to do necessarily with personality. This has to do with what has been done on the cross at Calvary on your stead. Son of God defeated your two greatest enemies, sin and death. It's 
secure a right standing with him. And by doing so, he's sending you and me out with no excuse, regardless of our uh, Myers-Briggs and our strength finders and our spiritual gifts. The hospitality is the task that has been charged to every believer that has come to Christ. It's imperative. You've heard it, you know, last, the, the, the command here is, or the charge, or the, you know, what we've been really praying, in fact, you know, as a, as a body of elders and pastors here, we met last week even as we were forecasting our goals and asking God to, to, to move with even, you know, greater um, power and excitement, you know, amongst, amongst our, our community here in Pinecrest and Miami Springs at Brickell and at Key Biscayne, all throughout the city, is it that in this, during this season, as we prayerfully consider over the stewardship campaign of the, of the making our house a home, is that we would have everyone around the table in our family, that we would have 100% participation, and that we would watch God do infinitely more than just the sum of our efforts, just the multiplication of our efforts, that he would do some exponential It's, it's indescribable. The, you know, Scripture actually actually says, that, that, you know, eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard the things that God has in store and prepared for those who love him, who trust, who throw themselves wholeheartedly into his hands and say, God, here we are surrendered as a community of faith. Everyone is called to participate in making our house at home. That's where we will continue to see the impact of God's kingdom coming to settle here in the city of Miami, in the region abroad as it is in heaven, when we begin to team up to exercise radical hospitality together. You see? Last of our points is to empathize, to be defined by the way in which their pain is our pain. Each other's inadequacies is our inadequacies. The way you hurt is the way I hurt and vice versa. It's to meet one another where we're at. Each other are. The command, is to re- the command we receive is to show Christian sympathy to all. The word in verse 3 is to remember. Look at it again. Which in the New Testament, it carries the weight, if you will, much weightier Intended meaning. It means to dwell. It's not just to bring to cognitive memorance, if you will, what you had for breakfast this morning. So it's not like, you know, the word that's used in the Old Testament, when God remembers us, it's not that he forgot about Marcus. And he's like, oh, I guess there's Marcus too. You know, that was easy to forget over there. It's that he is identifying, is that he's dwelling is it that he is going the great length to prove his love? It's not merely recounting, bring it to memory, but it's to find ourselves in their shoes. It's to identify with others as Christ has identified with us. You've heard it before. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Okay? The juxtaposition of love isn't to hate It's to neglect. It's to forsake. It's to pass by. 
Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Even if you engage in conflict, at least you're engaging. You're giving them the time of day. The call is to empathize. The call is to go way beyond not just hating. You see, to be completely unacknowledged and neglected and forgotten is the most dehumanizing of every feeling we could possibly experience in this life. And yet to be identified with, and some of you know exactly, some of you have gone through it even this year. And yet to be identified with, to have someone share your tears truly, to hear the voice of the one who you utterly love say, I understand and I'm here with and for you. Exercise the ministry of presence. To not feel that you need to fix it, because you can't, but to say, I'm simply there with you. That's what every one of our hearts and souls has been yearning for. That's what we're utterly and ultimately thirsty for. Until we're won over by that love, everything else is outside in attempts to change. But the good news of the gospel is inside out change. It meets our hearts, it meets our souls at the loneliest place. And his name is Emmanuel, God with you. I love the geniusness of the text of these hymns that we sing during Advent season. Often we bulldozer through them because we're familiar with its melodies and they're playing at Gap at Walmart and stuff like that too. So it's like, okay, where's the, you know, it lost that kind of real substance and depth, you know, to them. But I love the hymn. I love a line from the hymn of Holy Night. I think it expresses all too well what he's saying here. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining. And then it says, until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Erroneously in the season, you're going to hear versions, adulterated versions, that it's not the good news of the gospel of grace. It says that somehow we welcomed the Savior of the world into our world. Much to the contrary, he who was coming as an infant to welcome us, broken, wayward, lost, ruined, bankrupt, needy, naked, empty and lonely, burned out, searching, until he appeared and everything began to make sense. Every sense of identity and, and value and worth it's tied to the quality of how he inclined himself to us. Love that flows from the cross of Calvary and the empty grave. And so this is how the uh, Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this first century young you know, believers in, in uh, Jerusalem, he encourages them in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And you're probably familiar with this passage this is in light of everything I've charged you with here. Understand you have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the son of God. God himself. 
Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Do you see that there? That is the quality by which makes him your perfect substitute. Not your good example, but your substitute, the one who took your place in my place. The one who lived the perfect life God requires and we could never live because he's a just God. But the one who died the death we should have died and God in his great love to our place. Jesus' perfect obedience in our place. He says, let us then, you know, grammatically speaking, and I'm, we're just wrapping it up. This is the end here. But there is a quality of grammatical response there, right? He says, in light of this, then let us then. It's important that you understand when we read, you understand what he's, being, what he's saying here. He's saying, because you've received such grace, then run to God's throne of grace with what? Confidence and boldness. Why are you so bashful? What's the lack of boldness, of power? Why that life so dull? Why does this cause very little impact in the workspace, in the home, in the neighborhood? You've received such power. Run through his throne of grace with confidence. Why? And then he answers it. Because that's where you find mercy. And that's where you have found grace to help you in your time of need. Are you in a time of need ever? Even this week. Even today, even this morning, what do you plug in? What is your source of ultimate encouragement? What lifts you up if not for the good news of how heaven has inclined to our brokenness and to our need and met us in our desperate state? But it didn't leave us there. It lifted us with him. So that we could take tasks like this, like making our house a home, and say, this, this city's yet to see. City's yet to see how we, God will posture, will, will line us up as a community of faith that is committed to loving Him and serving one another. All for his glory's sake, all for his, the fame of his name. You know, I pray that this would be, that we would respond, that the, the Holy Spirit of God would, you know, um, not allow us to uh, rest until we've done, he's done that kind of business, you know, with us and with our hearts as we move on to these next few weeks. And we enter into this Advent, uh, Advent season. I pray that you would receive this word with utter love and kindness. I I love you, and um, I, uh, I pray for God's absolute, you know, best, you know, for us as a church community as we, you know, as we enter into this uh, season, prepare our hearts for next, for next year. I wanted to do something a little, just slightly different than often, than we often will do here on Sundays, is I would just, I would just ask, because um, often it's so much to take in, it's like, have, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, that we just take just a, less than a minute or so of just... Uh, of, a, of a silent time here and allow for calm, settle the room. And uh, I'm going to pray. When, and when I pray, our ushers will come forward. It, we'll already be entering in and transitioning into this, you know, element of response in our worship service. Typically, we'd wrap up the sermon and, 
and then come back to a time of offertory and giving. But I'd like to just go ahead and conurb and uh, merge, merge the two. But I'd like to enter into that, you know, in a meaningful way, you know. God's asking a lot of us, and I think that he can, you know, far surpass what our expectations even um, are as we move into next year. And then we'll, we'll respond with our ties and with our offering. But um, also, if you filled out that connection card, put that in the offering, in the offering plate as well. We'd love to, uh, to sit down with you, and maybe we can digest this even further if you have any questions. That's what we're here for, okay? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's be wrap up our morning. Father, thank you for your word because it is the power to transform lives, to cause the dead to come back to life. Father, it's a double-edged sword that pierces into the inmost part of our, of our souls, and it, con- it confronts us. It, in, in, in many ways, it, it, it holds up against, like a mirror, all the many ways by which we've at times tried to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it reminds us that all the work has been done. And the only work left for us is to throw ourselves into your loving arms, is to lean on you. For that which you're already doing, what you continue to do, and for that which you are going to do in our community of grace here at Pinecrest. Father, we, we pray fervently. We, um, even this week, I know there were, there were many of us, even in our leadership team, that took a day to fast and, and to just seek your face for what you might have for us. I truly believe, and I pray that you would uh, ignite a new fire in our hearts and our souls that we would see that the best is yet to come, so much more on the horizon. There are countless lives every day around us who, don't, who have not yet found the permanent solution for the hopelessness that lies in their hearts, namely Jesus Christ. And Father, that you would use us as a city on a hill, salt and light. Grow your kingdom. Ordain the means, the ends, but also the means. Use us, Father. Pray this not because we deserve, but because you're full of mercy and full of grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people emphatically said, Amen.